Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you should have read already. I may need to work on that tagline. We want this podcast to help you read the books that have been staring at you from the nightstand, bookshelf, or wish list. We want to help you read the classics that have been haunting you analogically. But before we get into all of that, let me introduce my co-hosts. First, Andrea Lipinski, our Vice President of Consulting and Training at Cersei. Hi, Brandon. Thanks for having me here. Give everybody a little uh, introduction to what you do here at Cersei. Sure. After I graduated from the apprenticeship, I came on part-time to direct that program. That went so well, I stuck around. And so now I oversee the apprenticeship as well as events like our national and regional conference, um, our online training with online classes for students as well as teachers with webinars and intensives and consulting where we go into schools and homeschools and we coach headmasters. So it's a, a variety of places all centered around consulting and training. All right. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, next, Matt Bianco, who was looking at me strangely because my sentence sounded like we have these books have been haunting you analogically. Um, and I, I can see that now that I could not see in print. So Matthew <laughs> Bianco, our, our COO, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Most of you probably know him already from the plays, the thing, or a couple times on our, our frenemy podcast, uh, close reads. And, uh, we, uh, but, but Matt, tell everybody what you do at Cersei as COO. What do I do as the COO? I guess I, I try to keep things orderly and systematized and moving along so that we can be efficient and effective and in helping people with classical education, teaching, learning themselves. I probably am most notorious for being the Plato guy that hates, well, everybody, <laughs> apparently. I hate Aristotle. I hate Dante. I hate Hector. I hate novels. That's the, not, that's the one now, too. I hate novels. Mm. Um, what what might be easier to list the things I don't hate? Uh, so I'm probably kind Baseball. of famous or notorious for that, but for all of my hate, but none of those things are true. Of course, I don't hate Aristotle or Dante or novels. Um, I just want all those <laughs> things to be in their proper places. That's good. That's good. Uh, hopefully we'll be putting some of those things in their proper places here on this podcast. Um, but that, that brings us to the point. Why, why one more reading podcast in, in the great landscape of podcasts. Well, we looked at that landscape and, and for us, we didn't see one that was focused on classics. Some of you may be out there listening and saying, wait, wait, I know of one, but we should probably define our terms a little bit. So um, let's start with kind of how we all view those things a little bit. Andrea, uh, when you hear the word classics, when as, as it regards literature, kind of what are your parameters for that? What do you think of? So that's been adjusting, right? As I learn. Um, right now, I think of the authors that I enjoy reading, what influenced them? And so to go back to those classics, uh, for instance, George MacDonald is somebody I really enjoy reading. And he wasn't reading novels, as I now know them. So what has influenced the great thinkers? I want to go back to that and think with them. Matt, I, I have a suspicion that you're going to have the most restrictive definition on mm -hmm. classics, but... Mm -hmm. I don't want to assume too much. What, how would you define it? 
Well, I would, I would say a classic is any book that's classical. And classical refers to a certain period of time, basically Greek and Roman. So anything written in Greek or Latin would be, uh, or by the Greeks and the Romans, would be a classical book, which then would be a classic. I would draw a distinction, a sharp distinction perhaps, but I would draw a distinction between classics and great books because I okay. don't think there's any such thing as an instant classic. The Ford Mustang might have been an instant classic, but most of the stuff that we come out, we publish today or even in the last couple hundred years can't really be called an instant classic. So it would have to be that we, but we could call them great books because they're great to us right now. We don't know what they'll, how they'll be received by future generations and future cultures. So it's hard to say whether they're classics uh, or whether they will be classics but we can consider their greatness as far as how we've received them at this point in time. So I'd make that distinction for myself, but, but it's, I'm a little bit looser than that. Like I say that, but I'm a little bit looser than that. I mean, obviously there are Chinese classics and, you know, other cultures have classics. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously there are some texts from the uh, late antiquity and the medieval period that are, that I would, I would think of as classics like Dante, for example, um, that I would consider classics, Boethius, uh, Chaucer, Shakespeare. But beyond that, newer than Shakespeare, it gets more difficult, much more difficult for me to think of them as classics. If someone, if someone pressed you, is that where you would put the line right now? Uh, kind of Shakespeare and, and before? Well, okay. So if I can draw my line so that you have this line that's going across that kind of like, like here's this this year, whatever, 1612 or something, right? And then here's this line going across that year. But then there's but then it swings up and it loops way up into the 20th century or 19th century. And it circles around a certain group of people, then comes back down to 1612 <laughs> and then finishes out straight across. And that that lasso that swings up into the 19th century and pulls pull some include some people down into the, everything below 1612 would be the the russians so you're going to swing i'm going to swing up there and i'm going to grab tolstoy and dostoevsky as classics and then okay uh, okay so you're going to have this one section for what we traditionally think of as as well not traditionally but contemporarily what's considered like the western canon but then maybe some loops that go out to to some geographies that are outside of that that's more closed geography, um, which is kind of a more modern, we'll get into that, all these kind of things more than the podcast, but more modern constructs of those kind of things. And that would allow you to jump into to Russia and parts of Asia and, and grab some other texts possibly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. That's fair. Um, I, I think for me, um, at, at a bare minimum, a couple centuries have had to go by, like Matt talked about. Uh, I, I even have a hard time uh, using the categories you gave listing many things from the last century as a great, a great book yet, right? There needs to be a little bit of longevity to even get that title. You know, it can't just be a bestseller for a couple of years and then fade from existence. So we probably got a few things that have now that we're a little ways into the 21st century that from the early 20th century that have had that longevity uh, of at least a hundred years or so. Uh, and then we kind of be kind of a, a gradient back from that, which would be great books. And then, and then uh, classics. Yeah, but probably probably late medieval is is where I feel the most secure putting the line somewhere in there. But um, so that that might give y'all 
you listeners a, a general idea of what we're talking about. Uh, as Matt mentioned, you're going to be, uh, and Andrea too, with novels, you're going to be hard pressed to get us to consider a novel if some way down the line we're looking for suggestions, um, with the exception for Matt of the Russians, possibly. <laughs> and so that's where we, we felt like there was a space here for a lot of things that aren't being covered in podcasts, which tend to focus on things, even when they call something a class, but they're typically talking about, um, you know, only going so far as far back as like, say the 1800s. Um, and, and so, and more importantly for us as a, as a classical education Institute, there are so many of these texts that, that just go without being read, even though they're on the great books list, even though, we know we're supposed to, if our kids are in classical schools, be encouraging them to read them or for homeschooling at home, even ones we bought a lot mm. and stared us from ourselves because no one's making us read them. And then when we show up at a Cersei conference and people start talking about them, we just kind of fade back a little bit and get another cup of coffee because we haven't, haven't read that one yet. So that's, that's kind of our parameters for when we're talking uh, about classics. Um, if I could tell this story real quick, Brandon, I remember a story once. Please, please. That, um, a former pastor of mine told me that he was at some assembly, you know, for the, the different pastors in the denomination. And they were talking and he was talking to one of his friends that he hadn't seen since seminary or whatever, or since the year before his assembly meeting. And he asked him what he was up to. And he said that he was reading Lord of the Rings. And my pastor said, oh, really? How, how many times have you read it now? And he said, well, this is my first time. And he said, what? You're reading Lord of the Rings for the first time? And, he's, and he said, yeah, I was sick of having to lie about it to everybody. So I decided I should just get on, and get on with it and actually read the book. Nice. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. I'm not saying that any of us here have lied about reading anything at any Cersei conference ever, but, you know, it's possible. And I'm not accusing any of you in the audience of that either. But, you know, it's possible. I probably have opinions about people I haven't read enough of. So that's even worse, right? Like I have to some form some opinion of someone I've maybe read snippets of. So I, I want to move away from that. I want to help. We want to help everybody else move away from that. Um, but more importantly, because these texts have a lot to teach us and we believe that they lasted because there's some value to them when we read them. And so we want to take the fear out of that. Uh, we want to make it, make them approachable as much as we can. Uh, another thing on the landscape of reading podcasts is that uh, many of them tend from some angle to be approaching things uh, with literary uh, a literary analysis approach. And that can be a broad range of things. There's kind of some, some older kind of standard versions of that, that, and then all the way up to an ever growing number of very niche literary analysis, theory, analysis theories, all of which have their place or most of which probably have their place. Maybe some of them don't. Um, but that place isn't here. It's not going to be our, our focus on this show. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about something called analogical reading. For anyone who was at our regional conference a year ago in Texas, uh, you had a chance to hear about this from, from Matt. I'm going to link that talk here in the show notes. Make sure you listen all the way through to the Q&A at the end because there's some great conversation there that really flesh, helps flesh it out even more. But Matt, I'd like to give you just a chance to kind of at a very high level elevator pitch version of what we're talking about with analogical reading versus analytical reading um, and and why we want to start there with the things we're talking about. Yeah. Well, the talk took me over an hour to give, but yeah, sure. I'll try to cram it into a couple minutes for you, Brandon. I, no I gave Matt like two minutes 
two minutes warning before we started recording that I was going to ask him to do this. So if anything I say doesn't make sense, then just listen to the talk. And I think I flesh it out better there. But the gist of it is that there's two approaches to reading. There's two approaches to life, learning anything. There's an analogical approach and an analytical approach. And the analytical approach, both of them are good. I think that's important. Both of them are appropriate and necessary and good. But there's a there's an ordering that needs to take place. And the analytical approach is to kind of look at something as a whole, take the whole of a thing, a whole book, a whole frog, a whole dog, a whole tree, whatever, and then kind of break it up into its parts and look at the individual parts to see what they are and then kind of put them all back together maybe put them all back together, maybe not. That depends on the person doing the, the analysis is to, to look at the parts and then think that by knowing the parts, I now know the whole. If I put them all back together, I might, but there, I actually just read this. This is not in my talk, but I just read this recently. There's a book called How to Read a Page by I.A. Richards. He's a famous kind of philosopher, literary critic from the 20th century. He and Lewis knew each other. He was in the T.S. Eliot school, like the new critic, new critic, um, critics, the new criticism critics. And he has a, he had a paragraph in his book, which I've, I've heard. I don't know if this is true. I can't confirm. I haven't confirmed, but I heard that this book was written in response to Mortimer Adler's book, how to read a book. So he, Adler writes a book called how to read a book. Richards writes a book, how to read a page. And he says, and so he's talking about what I'm describing right now, but he's taking it down to the level of a sentence. And he says that most people think that a word has a meaning. And that when I read a sentence, what I'm trying to do is look at the meaning of this word, plus the meaning of this word, plus the meaning of this word, plus the meaning of this word, add them all together. And now I know the meaning of the sentence. And he said, that's not how language works because the meaning of this word next to the meat, next to this word and in relationship to this other word and these other words that the relationships create meaning where the word by itself wouldn't necessarily have it, but as a whole, it has it. So what we need to do is we need to read the sentence as a whole to get the under, to get an understanding of what the individual words mean. So there's this kind of whole uh, looking at the thing as a whole rather than as parts. And he says that typically that's how we read. We read things by looking at the parts and that we're, that we're not getting a full understanding that way. And the whole, this is just a paragraph in the book and the whole book is about this. So analytical reading is like that, where we, we take maybe the sentence and break it down into its parts and then try to add them all together. Or we take the book and break it down into its parts and then try to add it all together. I say, I have, I identify, you know, the protagonist and the antagonist and the plot and the characters and the, and the setting and all of this stuff. And then I add all that together. And now I know what the book's about. And that's not just like with the words in the sentence, that's just not how books work. Cause all of those things are in a relationship that we have to look at the whole to get at it. So that's literary analysis and then literary criticism, which fault, which is a kind of literary analysis is when you take a particular lens and then you use that lens to interpret the text. So the new critics are doing that in a, in a good way, but also an isolated way. The um, queer theory, feminist theory, Marxist theory, Freudian theory, all of those are forms of criticism in which I'm reading a text through the lens of queer theory or through the lens of Marxist theory. And then it, and then it 
it means I end up interpreting the story in a way that draws out ideas kind of being carried through in those lenses about queers or about feminism or about Marxism or whatever. That that kind of literary criticism can be helpful if I'm trying to understand the plight of, of women or queers or blacks or the poor or whatever in my culture. And then this book is kind of being used to, to draw attention to that, but it doesn't help me to understand the book. It helps me to understand culture using the book. So I think that's a, help, a clar- clarifying distinction that needs to be made. On the other side, you have analogical reading, which is understanding the symbols and understanding the, the logos, the, the, the idea of the text as a whole. And, and we call this analogical because we are coming from the three of us and the Cersei Institute as a whole. We are coming from the perspective that the world is logocentric. There is the logos, Christ, the son of God. And then he speaks, lo- he speaks a logos into existence or he, the, 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 the spoken, the God speaks and a, and creation is brought into existence through a logos and each of those each of those little l logoi are analogically related to the capital l logos that is christ and so you have this kind of relationship there so every logos is interrelated from itself to others to others but also all back to the main one the christ and then throughout through those relationships and so any two logos, any two logoi can be compared and, 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 and we can learn from that comparison. So, so in some sense, every story ever written is, is a story written to be, to, to be, or is anyway, regardless of the author's intention, an analog of life in this cosmos, in this cosmo logos. And and so everything has an analogy to life in this cosmos and to my own life in this cosmos. So in some sense, analogical reading is kind of entering into the story and seeing how it is an analogy to all of life, how it is an analogy to the cosmos, and then what I can learn about life and what I can learn about myself from this story and what I can learn about the story from this life from myself, right? So if we think of what Paul writes uh, in the letter to the Ephesians, you have Paul telling us that the relationship between Christ and the church is the same as the relationship between a husband and his wife. Christ and the bride and his bride, the church, is the same as the relationship between a husband and his wife. And what we discover from Paul in that passage is that what I know about the relationship between Christ and the church can teach me about what the relationship ought to look like between a husband and his wife. And when I encounter a relationship between a husband and a wife, that is a good one. I learn something about the relationship between Christ and the church, right? Each one informs the other. That's what, that's what analogical reading is for us. So we, we, we were reading the story as a whole, trying to see that whole as an analog to the cosmos and to our life in the cosmos. And then we can understand both things because of that. 
So, we, so it teaches us to ask questions and to, and to note things in the text, ask questions of the text and note things in the text that are, that are bringing that to bear. Um, and because we're doing that, we're seeing the text as a whole. It allows us to, to understand the text as a whole, the logos of the text, rather than, rather than breaking it up into little bits and then trying to add all that back together. So we, we get the whole of it. The other, the other thing that's worthy of note is that at Cersei, we talk about this thing that we, we, we call it the triangle. It's kind of interesting because we have a lot of, a lot of ideas at Cersei where, where we talk about different things and, and we're, we're, we tend to be really good at naming them. But then when we, we put all those ideas together into a grouping and then we name that grouping, we're really bad at it. So we have this thing called the triangle. We have this other thing called the three columns. We have this other thing called the seven dimensions. We have this other thing called the four stewardships. We have this other thing called the seven commitments. Then we have this other thing where we put the commitments, the stewardships, and the dimensions together, and we get the seven four seven. Where they're just kind of bizarre names. They don't really, com- they're not really clear, communicate, communicative in any way. But anyhow, setting all of that aside. <laughs> We have this thing called the triangle. And in the, if you think of it, an equilateral triangle, picture this. We're ready to draw it out on a piece of paper. At the top of the triangle, there's a single point at the top, two points at the bottom. The single point at the top represents the author of the text. The bottom left corner, we call the artifacts. So we have the author at the top, the artifact on the bottom left. The artifact represents the text itself. And the bottom right is the audience. And the audience represents the reader, and every other person who has ever read it in all of history makes up the audience. So the, the truth about the text, the logos of the text, we would argue is contained in the middle of that triangle. The artifact itself doesn't communicate the logos because of any failures, say, on the author's part to, to write clearly for example, the author doesn't know the logos of the text himself. They are, most artists will actually tell you that, but the author doesn't know the logos of the text himself because sometimes truths come out that he wasn't even intending in the text. Right. And then the audience doesn't know the logos of the text by itself because of all of the limitations that audiences have like biases and anachronistic thinking and all kinds of stuff. Right. But if you put all those things together, you can, you can get at what the logos of the text is. So one of the things that we want to do when we're reading text, I think here is read it analogically, but read it with that in mind that there is a tradition. I'll call it the tradition now, but we call it the audience on the triangle because we want all A's, all of our corners to have a names. But the audience represents the tradition. How has this text been brought through the tradition, through all of the prior audiences to me, to get to me? And how have they understood it? And that tradition can put boundaries on how I interpret the text and how far astray I can go, how far afield I can go in my interpretation, or require that I be stricter in proving my assertions, right? So there, there's that role. Then, of course, there is authorial intent and in the the circumstances that the author was living in and how all of that might've affected and get played out in the writing of the text. And then there's of course the text itself and the words that are used in it to communicate. 
Um, so what I think what we want to do is kind of have our conversations about that, right? Like we might, we might focus on any one corner at a time, but we're, but we're never wanting to exclude or prioritize Mm -hmm. one corner over the other, though we might, we might argue at times that one corner might, that one, one ought to consider one corner first and then another corner second and then another corner third, things like that. But yeah. Does that help with the analogical reading? And I know I went way over just a couple of minutes there, but no, there's a lot, there's a lot a, you're asking me to say. That was good. And I think bringing the triangle in was, it was an important part of that. Um, we'll have more discussions about that, but one of my favorite things that I learned from you about that years ago when I was first learning was we have this, we tend to have a view of the artifact being static and it's, it's really not. Um, some things become great long after they're, they exist for circumstances of history and various things like that. And so it's, it gets fun to get into the weeds on that kind of stuff a little bit, but I think that was good. And I think um, hopefully the audience will be able to see how this plays out as we go through texts. Um, They'll be able to ask us questions uh, down the road. And I really do encourage anyone uh, if you, you know, carve out a little bit of time and go listen to that talk because it's, it's a really good, um, uh, more thorough explanation of all of this. Um, And like I said, a great, watching it live Socratic dialogue between Matt and Andrew during the Q and a, like a, just a real searching for knowledge together, which was kind of cool. Um, Andrea, you, uh, you were there. Uh, so you got to see some of that too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we, uh, oh, can to, we, can we ask Andrea real quick? What, if yeah. there's, is there anything that, um, I don't know that, that needs to be said, like, did I missed or, that you would kind of draw to, or draw attention to at least and say, yeah, yeah, that's, that needs to be emphasized or, or how are you thinking about going into this? Do you want to be responsible for one of the corners? Just kidding. <laughs> I think we're all responsible for all the corners. That's how this is going to go. Um, now, I mean, I think the only thing that I would add to that is um, the part that you mentioned about how the words of a sentence aren't to be understood in isolation that they have a relationship to one another is really vital. Um, The analogy that I understand that to be by is that when we, the three of us have a conversation or whatever groupings have a conversation, right? There's things that we're gonna each help one another bring out that wouldn't be brought out without the other one present. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the same thing happens with the words in a sentence. You need all of those words in that sentence to bring out the full meaning of that sentence. So that's the hope. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's good. That's, that's part of this too, right? This reading and community Mm -hmm. um, uh, that allows for that. And it helps us all to understand things better. Um, Well, to, to partially appease Matt's strictest view of classics, we we are reaching way back into the Greeks to get started. And so uh, we'll be starting with one of Plato's dialogues, uh, Alcibiades one, or however you prefer to pronounce the Greek. Um, which is one of two, two of the dialogues that focus on uh, Alcibiades. I want to start with Andrea this time. Uh, we'll, we'll be breaking that into two parts. We'll get to the, I'll, we'll get to that in a second. But uh, Andrea, um, you've read some Plato. You've done it within the apprenticeship. You've taught it in the apprenticeship. What advice do you have for people who maybe are approaching a dialogue for the first time or haven't had a good experience with it in, in the past uh, when it comes to reading Plato? I can share. I had not read Plato until I was in the apprenticeship. And in the apprenticeship, we only read three. 
and um, we're reading a lot of other things. We're writing, we're teaching. There's a lot going on. And so I've really wanted to understand this because Pluto wasn't chosen for no reason. I, I know there's an intent behind the things that we're reading together and they're carefully chosen, but I was having a hard time understanding Plato. And I assumed um, that he was coming from one direction and I couldn't see past that. I was reading something in that I don't believe now was there. Um, and so in order for me to try to see what was on the page better, what I did, and I don't remember who recommended it, it might've been Matt or Andrew, uh, was I read many shorter dialogues. So I could quickly get many more types in to then compare rather than just this one, because I got stuck on my first one. And I got stuck in the middle of my first one. And Andrew kept saying, no, just keep reading. I was like, but I, I don't understand this. He's like, you just got to keep reading. Now I'm remembering. Um, and so then I, it was recommended that I read many short ones. So I'd have a few more types to compare. And then I felt like I could see him better, um, see the writing better and see where it was going better. Because it wasn't, they didn't all end the same way. They didn't all begin the same way. They didn't travel the same road. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was really helpful for me. So I, that's what I recommend for Plato is to read a few of the short ones um, before thinking you have an understanding. That's good. That's good. That, that That's one of Andrew's favorite things, right? Uh, understanding is overrated, right? Just, mm. just, just, just keep reading. Just keep reading. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you. That's good. Uh, yeah. The, the apprenticeship was my first um, time with Plato as well. Something I had put off probably because I, thought it was something that it wasn't. Um, what was so fun to realize was that they are our dialogues. And we did something for a while at the Cersei offices uh, back before COVID where we were opening it up once a month and going through some of these dialogues with people in the community. And that's one thing I have. If you're really having trouble just with the, you're not used to the format or anything like that, if there's someone else who you, you have to read with you, um, like, taking it in parts can be helpful to, to get the feel of what's happening here. It's an actual conversation between two people. Um, and so having someone else to do the, the other voice, one of you be Socrates, one of you be the other person, um, and trade off, then, um, that's helpful. That's helpful to kind of get into the, the mindset of the, um, the genre, I guess, the, the formatting of the dialogues. Um, and after doing that, even just a few times when I went, even when I would go back, myself it was easier to kind of have two voices going in my head if that makes sense um so almost treating it a little bit like a play matt any any sage advice i definitely think imitating brandon and reading it dramatically with different voices in your head is a good way to do it for example like you might say well socrates what kind of self-cultivation do i need to practice can you show me the way what you said really sounded true Yes, but let's discuss together how we can become as good as possible, right? I think if you did that, it would be that would be yeah. nice. always do Socrates in like the wise Jedi voice, and then we'll try to get a list of which ones to say like a, a hayseed hick who doesn't know anything, which ones to sound super, which ones to sound super arrogant, mm -hmm. you know, which characters uh, have those personalities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I just think I just think just reading the text and listening to it for what it says rather than a, like, I think you got the, 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 one of the difficulties with reading out loud is of course that you add intonation that might not be there mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. not assuming, not assuming that any one character is speaking 
sarcastically or bitingly mm. or Good. crudely or rudely or whatever. Um, and just, just kind of reading the words as they are and letting the ideas filter through before you go back and kind of add tone of voice because I mean, I do this in email and digital conversations all the time. I read Facebook, right? I'll read some comment and then I'll, t- I'll be telling, I'll be telling somebody else about the conversation. And when I say what the person wrote to the other person, I'll add all this intonation. And then, you know, a good, a good friend will call me out on it and say, did, really? Did it, did they write, did they say it like that? Like, how do you know that they were saying it that kind of rigidly or whatever? And so, you know, we don't want to, I just, in the way that that person's being a good friend to me and not letting me read emotions or tone of voice into a Facebook message, I want to be that, we want to be that kind of good friend to each other here and to, to our listeners and not, not let us do that to Socrates or, or Alcibiades, Alcibiades, whatever, um, mm-hmm. either. So, but the, you know, this, but the podcast is not about Plato. This just happens to be who we're starting with for our first text, right? Right. Uh, right. Looking yeah. Thank at you for pointing that out. Kind of those classical education, classical older texts that are, are that we're less likely to have read so that we can broaden our classical education, right? We could be classical educated ourselves. Yeah. Here we all are trying to teach our students and our children and give them a classical education and we don't even necessarily have a classical education. So let's get us a classical education so that it's easier for us to give it to, to others. Agreed. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Yeah, we'll be we'll be trying to cover, you know, wide range and kind of bouncing back and forth a little bit in history with these texts. We're not going to go straight through or anything like that. But it's already uh, been agreed, though. We're never reading Aristotle or Dante or the all the people I hate, right? Virgil. Virgil, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, you'll you'll probably get your wish mostly on not a lot of novels, except for maybe Russians. Yeah. But then the Russian novels will take us. We'd have to be. We'd have to commit like a year and a half to just one novel. So. <laughs> well, we don't. I mean, so the maybe, novels in the the novels in the in the Shakespeare plays are both being done by other podcasts. Our our right. our frenemy, as you put it earlier, that yeah. and they're doing it really well. Like they're doing it the right way. So those are kind of covered at this end but yeah yeah we want to provide that yeah I joke i did joke about that you know obviously tim on our network has has shakespeare pretty well covered um and and um we're, we're not snooping around behind david's back either on close street so we, we love those guys where we still participate with them often and so but yeah they're, they're covering a lot of these books that we aren't planning on getting to and so um and like i said doing it doing it very well um and so we just want to provide a different space for a different set of texts and, and uh, you know, and to approach them the way uh, with a particular focus on this analogical reading. So I imagine uh, if we did end up recovering a text that was already covered by either of those groups, it wouldn't be because we think we can cover that book better than they did. It would more likely be we just really wanted to read this book together and talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, right. Or they or and, or we didn't like the translation they picked. <laughs> um, no, so th- th- that's what we're looking forward to. Uh, we hope to cover a lot of ground uh, in here, but there's a lot to cover, so we won't get to all of it. But hopefully, it'll, it'll help. if we get started, people will be able to 
take what they learn on here, uh, or what we learn together and apply it to the, some text, even if we don't pick it. So that's what we'll be starting. We'll be starting with uh, Alkibiades. I'll go that way. Alkibiades 1. Uh, Matt, could you give a little explanation? We're going to break that dialogue into two parts. Uh, so we'll have we'll have two podcasts on this um, and then probably try and do a, a Q&A if we, if, if we can fit that in. Um, but could you give folks an indication of where to, where to break that in the middle? Yeah. Yeah, the it's it's not quite in the middle. The first half will be a little bit longer than the second half. But the first half, if you read section, so what you're going to want to look for is an edition online or in print that has what they call the Stephanus numbers for Plato. This will be true for any Plato you ever read. So Stephanus numbers are kind of like line numbers. It'll have a number in the margin, say 101. And then a little bit, and then an inch or so down, it'll have a B and then a C, and then a D, and then maybe an E, and then the next section will say 102. And then and, you know down from there, it'll be B, C, D, E. So when you look at the 101, it's really 101A, and then an inch down will be 101B, and then an inch down will be 101C, and so on, so 102A, 2B, 2C, whatever. So it's easier to go by the Stephanus numbers because then you don't have to have the same edition. You can read from any edition as long as it includes the Stephanus numbers. The Stephanus numbers are universal. Page numbers obviously aren't. So we're going to read from 103A, which is the first line of the book, because the, 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 the dialogues don't start with one because what they did was they published all the dialogues in order, and then they numbered them starting with the very first dialogue was section 1A, and they just continued the numbering through all the dialogues to the end. So you can't, so they never resets at one. So you get to some of them and it's, it's section 1242A or whatever. So Kibiotis is typically one of the ones that's included near the beginning of the corpus, which is why it has a lower number, 103. So we're going to read 103A through 124B. So that includes the section B. And you can just stop kind of at the end of that paragraph or whatever. And then, so 103A to 124B. And then the next section will be 124C or wherever that kind of whatever paragraph you stopped at through one the end, which is 135E. So it'll be about 21 sections in part one and about 11, 12 sections in part two. And that will get you the, that'll be the whole dialogue. Um, one other note that I would make is that we, we can't really do this with all of the books that we'll be reading, but a really helpful exercise, I think, when it comes to Plato is if you know what question he's asking, that you ask and answer that question for yourself before you read the dialogue. So in this case, He's asking, what, is it, what does it mean to know thyself? So you should, before you listen to the next episode of the podcast, you should ask yourself and your friends, family, whoever, what does it mean to know thyself? And write down your answer to that or say it out loud to yourself. Um, kind of draw a conclusion there and kind of say, this is what I think it means to know thyself. And then when you read the text, look and try to see how is Socrates answering that question. Not, do I agree with him? Not, is he right or wrong? But here's what my answer is. Now, how does he answer it? What is his answer to it? And then, and then after the fact, you can work out whether he's right or wrong, you're right or wrong, how you would change it or whatever. But come up with your answer first. It's easier to, I find it easier 
and I've heard reports that people find it easier to figure out what Socrates' answer is if they already know their own answer to that question. So I would recommend that exercise anytime you're reading Plato. Figure out what the question is, answer it, then read and figure out what his answer is. Thanks, Matt. That's good. I've got a little bit experience with that now for the first time uh, this year through through Matt's Plato Atrium. So I, I concur. It's, it's helpful to do that exercise. So. All right. Well, that wraps up um, our short introduction <laughs> to our new show. Um, I hope all of you will uh, will join us with Alcibiades 1, um, uh, like Matt said, uh, 103A to 124B. And we talk to you next week. So for Matt and Andrea and Overdue Classics, I'm Brandon. Thanks for reading with us. <laughs>